G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. From time to time we are privileged to hear the most amazing stories of how people come to faith in Christ. And our guest today is a native of El Salvador and a former gang leader. He grew up on the mean streets of Los Angeles and was forced to fight for his life. He was eventually jailed for second-degree murder and 52 counts of robbery as one of the most violent criminals in California, and he was placed in solitary confinement. His life was forever changed in a prison cell when one day he encountered God in a miraculous way. Today our special guest is Darwin Casey Dears. He's been sharing his story with audiences around the United States, and now his story is being told in a new book called The Shot Caller. It is a story of a miraculous escape from a life of violence to a new life in Christ. It's co-written the book with Mike York, but uh, over this next hour, Casey is our special guest. So Casey Diaz, a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you so much, Neil, for having me on your uh, program. Uh, Casey, we're talking to you today. You're in California, is that the case? That's correct. Okay, take us back to the beginning, Casey, and we won't labor a lot on the beginning, but it is an important part of the story that when we talk about a person's life, you know, how those beginnings were shaped, you were brought to America from El Salvador by your parents and you were just a child at the time. Yeah, I was about two years old, and um, uh, we landed um, in Los Angeles uh, in an area called um, the Rampart District of Los Angeles. So it's about, about I'd say, about three to four miles away from downtown Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, uh, the very beginning of that was very innocent. I mean, uh, you know, we'd go outside, play ball, uh, baseball, football, and, uh, you know, uh, we were just being kids. And... Uh, but there was an element inside the house that, that I knew wasn't right. And one of those elements was that, you know, I had a very, um, uh, a, a father that just liked drinking uh, a whole lot and was very uh, verbal, verbally uh, abusing uh, my mom and, 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 and I. And uh, But then he took it a, st- a step further where he was um, brutally uh, beating my mom uh, uh, on a consistent basis. Uh, my mom worked... Uh, you know, one or two jobs all the time, and she'd leave at she'd leave the apartment around four in the morning, and wouldn't come back until uh, the wee hours of the night, ten, eleven at night. So we, I really didn't get to see a lot of her. And with him not working and just drinking and and uh, doing his things, um, you know, I was left unsupervised for a, a long uh, period of time uh, in my young age. I imagine, Casey, that often when you're sharing your story, you hear from people who've come from families that have been rather dysfunctional. You know, dad was a drinker, mum was working hard all day, 
And when you talk about the attractiveness of a gang culture, and you joined gangs early in your life, is there, and I wonder whether we might reflect on this even quite early in our conversation, this idea that we all want to belong to a family, and sometimes we belong to our functioning family at home, and we're under the care and the protection of our parents. Other times we're drawn to another family, and sometimes that family may well be a violent gang. Give us a little insight into that sort of connection that you had that was outside of your family unit. Yeah, well, you know, um, uh, again, uh, being left unsupervised, um, having no role model or uh, a mentor or, or a father that, that to uh, validate you um, takes a toll. And uh, unfortunately for me, we were um, being raised in a very gang-infested uh, and drug-infested area. And the, and the gang uh, culture, it, it, it was almost like, um, you know, it presented itself to me, and um, I, I saw the... Uh, the activity that they that they did, the cars that they drove, the parties that they had, and and it was enticing. And then you have gang members, uh, you know, you know, taking you under the uh, under their wing and and showing you stuff that you weren't aware of uh, before. And that becomes very intriguing to a young man that that that's left without you know any kind of supervision. And unfortunately, I, I you know I, I fell into that, and and um, yeah. It, at 11 years old, I, I ended up joining uh, this, this gang in Los Angeles. And when you join a gang, is it because as a teenager you think of a, an adventurous life? As you say, you can see what sort of parties, what sort of cars these gang members are driving. Uh, is this a, a, a big adventure for a young teenage boy? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's intriguing. Um, you know, the, the lifestyle you, you see, uh, this is in the 80s where... Um, MTV had just, uh, you know, entered the center, and so you had music videos and stuff like that that portrayed, uh, you know, this lifestyle uh, of gangsterism that was very, um, just, uh, it was catching to the eye, and uh, unfortunately, you know, you, you, you get into this thing, and you're just there for the party scene of it, uh, not knowing that there's more to that. You know, there's drugs involved, there's violence in, uh, uh, involved in that, and uh, for me, seeing violence very early, that, that was just a thing, you know, with, starting with my father. And then at the age of uh, eight, I saw uh, right uh, in the building, in the alley where we lived, um, I saw three men being executed uh, in cold blood. And um, the guy that just uh, had finished off uh, these three guys just simply walked to his car and drove off. He didn't speed off. He, didn't, he was in a hurry. He was very calm, very uh, collective, and uh, just walked to his car and, drove off and left three dead people there and so seeing that type of violence uh, uh, it, it starts to uh, affect the way you think about life and in connecting with those members of the gang you became then involved in the activities of the gang and you might like to take us into some of those activities as we set the scene for our conversation today but things like home invasions and carjackings uh, take us into some of the things that you were drawn into at a young age yeah, and, and you know, it, it starts with um, uh, what, what we would consider the small stuff, you know, stealing cars, uh, you know, perch, uh, purse snatching, and things of that, that nature. Uh, but for me, um, it, there was a gang leader at that time that took a liking to me, and uh, he took me under his wing, and um, I would go, uh, I would always go where he was, he was going because he just wanted me to be around him. And um, in, uh, at 11 years old, um, 
I had just joined. Uh, we went, and uh, it was his idea to, to go into a rival uh, territory. We went there, and we got our hands on, on a rival gang member, and uh, we, we proceeded to, to beat him. And then uh, he started to stab him, and, and then very when he was done, he simply gave me the screwdriver and said, uh, you know, your turn. And uh, so at 11 years old, that was my first stabbing. And uh, I wonder, just to uh, let listeners in on the, I suppose, uh, some sort of a, uh, just a brief warning here, that uh, perhaps our conversation today might not be uh, as it unfolds uh, in order of something that you want to expose the kids to. So just a little warning for parents there as we start to talk about some of these sorts of issues. But exposed to this sort of violence at age 11 and the first time that you'd stabbed someone, and this was the beginning of quite a significant cycle of violence that you were growing into here, Casey, because you learned to fight in the gang. You were a good fighter, clearly, and uh, I guess the gang leaders recognised that, and they were raising you up to be a fighter within the gang. Yeah, you know, uh, they, they would just take me to places where uh, the younger uh, gang members weren't allowed, and, and uh, you know, you, you become a product of whoever you hang out with. I mean, you know, if you hang out with millionaires, you're going to become one. The, the likelihood of you becoming one is pretty high, and if you hang around with a bad crowd, the likelihood of you becoming uh, that bad or worse, uh, it, it's there. And, and for me, it was that, you know, uh, them taking me on, on uh, what we used to call missions and going into uh, uh, into rival territories and, and, and snatching uh, rival gang members. That became so common, and it was almost like second nature for me uh, to, to, you know, it, it, I came to a point very early where I, I saw life and, I, and, and it was, life became very cheap after seeing that much violence. And take us to that age 16, which we're all thinking right now is still young. You're a young man at age 16 and you've been involved in some of these criminal activities Violence has become a part of who you are because you hang out with the gang members. Uh, but at age 16, uh, you don't expect uh, in your life that you're going to be arrested at this point uh, for serious crime and thrown into prison. But uh, take us back to age 16. What was going through your heart and your mind? Uh, were you an angry young man? Uh, were you just uh, simply absorbed into the crime culture of the gang? Take us to age 16. Um, at age 16... Um uh, I was at a uh, at a uh, little burger joint, little hole in the wall restaurant, and um, I was having a some a burger and some. Uh, it's a small meal, and um, <clears throat> back in those days, um, yeah, here in California, you were allowed to uh, if you had a, a pickup truck, you were allowed to uh, to ride on the back of the bed, and uh, uh, several uh, rival gang members uh, were in a in a pickup truck when they spotted me at this little burger joint. And uh, they came inside, uh, inside the restaurant, and um, a fight ensued. I had a stolen car outside, and under the, the, the seat of that car was a shotgun. And um, uh, I, I ran. The, the, the fight was very quick. Uh, they were all trying to jump on me, and um, I, I bolted out running. I got into the car, and uh, uh, the guy, the, the, the one closest to me, um, had a, uh, a, uh, a crowbar, uh, to take change tires, and uh, he was right right behind my tail. And uh, when I got into the car, I was able to grab the shotgun, and very quickly turned around. And unfortunately, uh, he was 
uh, about less than two feet away from me when I uh, when I fired the first shot um, at his face, and uh, and um, unfortunately um, he lost his life. Um, it was broad daylight, uh, and then after that, uh, I was on the run for uh, 21 days before I got captured. And. For listeners who are tuned into our conversation today and hearing your story, Casey, uh, we're not used to hearing uh, the story of murder happening on the radio. And uh, for some who might be thinking uh, we're trying in some ways to sensationalise or even glorify this idea of uh, gangs and murder, uh, far from the truth today because uh, we're going to get into uh, some issues as to how the journey for you did develop. But you were then arrested. Uh, As you say, you were on the run. Uh, You were charged with second-degree murder, which, as I understand it, is an intentional murder, but because it lacked premeditation, it's called second-degree murder. And uh, all of these other counts of uh, robbery, and uh, you found yourself in the dock, uh, standing before the magistrate or the judge, uh, take us into the prison, uh, into the uh, the courtroom, and uh, and what was happening when uh, when sentences being passed upon you. Um, you know, I I, I, I was so um, at this point in my life, um, I really didn't care about anything. Um, I was so just involved and and consumed by by this gang culture, and and so I, I really didn't even care about. Um, you know, you're 16 years old. Uh, you, you don't know the, the your legal rights. You don't know any any of this uh, stuff. You, you just know that you've been charged with something that you committed, and and um, now you're in front of a judge. And so, for me, it was just almost like a joke. I, I really didn't care about you know what I had, what my actions had had uh, you know done. Um, didn't care who I hurt, um, the families, and uh, I was just um, it, it was very a uh, prideful moment for me. Um, I knew that other gang members were going to look at me in a certain way now. And um, uh, but I'm sitting there, and uh, at that time uh, in California, they were testing the law to to see how young they could uh, um, convict a, a young offender and try him as an adult. And um, so I, I ended up landing with that law in in hand, and uh, was sentenced as as an adult. And but what they would do is they would, since it was very uh, early in the stage of this law being passed. Um, what they do is they sent you to a place called the California Youth Authority. And it was a, a prison for young people is what it was. Um, so they sent you there to see if there was still a chance to uh, to uh, rehabilitation, uh, you know, some kind of help. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the violence didn't stop even when uh, I committed that. Um, uh, I was found um, inside uh, while I was uh, doing my 90-day observation there. Um, uh, I was caught in the, in the very act of uh, strangling uh, my second victim there. And uh, he, he didn't pass away, but uh, it was very close. And at that point, the California Youth Authority said, uh, enough is enough with this guy. Um, let's send him straight to uh, adult prison, in which they did. They sent me to the L.A. County Jail uh, to get uh, the initial processing uh, done. Um, this is where they fingerprint you all over again. They uh, take the mug shots. And then you wait for what's called a chain. And so I ended up going to uh, Delano State Prison uh, and then from there uh, to New Folsom State Prison and directly to uh, solitary confinement. 
Lots more to share in this story today. But before we take a break, Casey, you've got a lot of people that you speak to and you've been particularly touring around the United States. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever been to Australia or there's a plan to come to Australia. We'll get to that shortly. But clearly parents who come to hear your story and some of them will be taking their teenage children along and and saying, hey, listen to this story because this is going to give you some warning as to what may be ahead if you choose the friends that you do. Parents who want to keep their kids out of gangs, they're often looking for warning signs. What do you say to parents about how you actually protect your children from becoming a gang member in the way that you were? I think, um, you know, as an adult now, as a Christian now, um, uh, I think, you know, everything starts at the home. Um, paying attention to your children, uh, spending time with your children is so essential. It's biblical. It's it's needed. Um, you know, uh, it's not anybody else's responsibility to uh, to raise your children. It's not the school. It's not the government. It's your sole responsibility as a parent to raise that child, to raise those children, and so spending time with them uh, is so uh, important. Uh, talking to them and 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 having open dialogue where your 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 children feel safe to share absolutely anything with your with you know that they're going through their ideas and and not having a backlash you know a backlash uh, if they share something that we as parents think oh that shouldn't be be uh, mentioned. I think uh, that. Uh, that open dialogue is is very needed, and um, you know, the family should be a, a safety net for our children. It should be somewhere where they do get validated, where the dad is there, you know, cheering the the the, the son, the daughter. Um, those things uh, will go a long way. You know, uh, I understand we're in a in a place and in in, in a state of, of where uh, some parents both uh, both parents have to work, or they have very important careers. And uh, they're providing great, uh, a great uh, living situation. However, they're neglecting their children. And this is where um, the dangers of not just gangs, but also uh, bad uh, company uh, uh, and them getting involved into, you know, the party scene, the drugs and all that stuff. That all happens uh, when we don't pay attention to our children. I think that's so important. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Our special guest this hour is Casey Diaz. He's been sharing his story with audiences around the United States and he's told his story in a new book called The Shot Caller. And you can be a part of our conversation, 1-800-316-316. Casey, as we've heard some of the violent aspects of your growing up, and then at age 16, a murder that put you in front of the judge, and you're sentenced to prison. Uh, You moved from prison to prison, and undoubtedly the prison experience is a harsh experience for someone so young. Uh, take us into just how tough it was behind bars and uh, some of the experiences that you had in the lead-up to what we'll call a dramatic encounter with God. Uh, but how bad was the prison experience? Well, um, uh, 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 the California Department of Corrections had a, um, has a system in place uh, at that time. I don't know if they have the same system now, but it was a system where y- you were graded from 1 to 100, 
the more points you scored, the more security was uh, needed for an individual. And so when uh, I went up to uh, uh, to Delano uh, for my observation uh, time there, uh, I came uh, ranking at 97 points, meaning uh, that I needed high security for that. And so I was placed in uh, in what's called the SHU, the SHU program, and that's the secured housing unit of the prison. So it's the prison inside the prison, and w- where you spend 23 hours of the day inside a, a cell, an 8 by 10 cell, um, you were allowed... Uh, one pair of boxers, a white T-shirt, one sheet, one blanket, a roll of toilet paper, and that's all you had in the cell. Um, and you had nothing but your thoughts inside that cell. Uh, there was no windows looking outside. Um, there was no clocks. There was nothing on the walls. Um, you, it's two gates, uh, so your door is uh, its actually two two doors uh, to open your, to let you out, outside of your cell. And... Um, so, uh, you know, I'm 18 years old at, at around that time and uh, full of anger, full of rage. Uh, I didn't care. Um, I already had become a, a validated gang leader or a shot caller and, um, in this prison. And, um, you know, there, there was this, um, this ministry that uh, uh, I was on my third year now in solitary confinement. Um, so uh, just so that you can keep up with the story. So this is my – I get there and I'll fast forward three years and I'm there, and I'm sitting there, and this um, this church ministry uh, starts coming in, and they came in. Uh, I never paid attention to them, uh, but they would come in once uh, one Thursday out of the out of the month. So twelve visits is what they would do in, inside solitary. And it was a small church. It wasn't some mega church. It was just a small church that um, you know uh, rendered their their time uh, in, in uh, to inmates. Uh, they were there for a very short time, and, and uh, if you wanted to join their Bible study, you could. Um, and this lady, uh, by the name of Frances Proctor, um, she was there, and um, I remember there was a conversation on the hallway um, with a guard, and I can hear the conversation, and I remember hearing her saying, uh, asking the guard, uh, is that a cell down there? And I didn't know that they were talking about me or that she was uh, pointing at my cell. Uh, at that moment, and uh, the guard uh, says, yeah, but, you know, you, you don't want to waste your time. And uh, so this happened three times where he he discouraged her uh, to approach my cell. And finally, uh, this lady, full of boldness, says, uh, you know, Jesus came for everybody. Uh, can I approach a cell? And, and she was allowed to do that. And, and I remember uh, the guard saying, that's Diaz. Uh, you can go ahead and do that, but you're wasting your time. I mean, there, that's how... That's how, uh, you know, uh, hardcore this guard was about me not ever even, even uh, you know, uh, changing ever. Um, so she approached the cell. Uh, there was a, a small conversation that ensued. Um, uh, I wasn't disrespectful. I just, you know, she offered uh, for me to uh, be part of her Bible study. And I, 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 I said, uh, no, I don't want to be part of any of that. Um, I didn't know uh, anything about Christianity, any kind of religion that that was just so far from me. I I wasn't raised like that, so uh, I, I told her I said, "No, I'm okay. I'm, I'm fine. I, I don't want to. I don't want to waste your time, and and, <laughs> and I don't want to waste mine. I'm not interested in that." And she said something to me while she was talking to me uh, through these uh, through this gate, and she says to me, "I'm going to put you in, on my hit list," and that was a very colorful word to use uh, <laughs> in a place like this. He says, I want to put you on my prayer hit list, and Jesus is going to use you. 
I'm going to pray for you, and Jesus is going to use you. And I thought, when she said that statement, I just thought, you know, this lady's nuts. She has absolutely no clue who I am, what I'm in here for, and where she's at. Um, uh, but she was just bold. And then she asked me, uh, right before she left, she said, uh, would you mind, uh, when I come here, if I could stop at your cell and then just pray for you? And I told her, I said, you can do whatever you want, uh, but I'm letting you know, uh, I'm not, that's not for me. I'm not joining any of your Bible study or whatever it is that you, you got to offer. So she made it a point for the next year and, 16, uh, and six months to stop at my cell. And she would always before, and I only had like maybe two to four minutes with her when she came. Um, and she would just, she would always tell me before she left, I'm praying for you and Jesus is going to use you. And uh, I just couldn't, uh, I, I didn't understand what she was, what she was doing. You're on a prayer hit list. You're a hardcore violent prisoner. Even the prison guard is a hardcore prison guard, says there's no hope. And this lady who looks down to the end of the aisle at the cell at the end of the block and uh, and sees that there is a door there and uh, knows that there is a prisoner there, how do you feel about that lady now? Because she could have moved on to the next block, but she chose to... Come and knock on your door. Frances Proctor, I think you said her name was. Uh, how do you honour that lady these days? Oh, she's, um, <laughs> she was God sent. Um, you know, this is a, a, a prayer warrior. Um, her intercession is why uh, I've uh, been out for so long. Uh, it's, it, it was why, um, you know, God used her in a powerful way uh, with that boldness and with that heart, with that love of Christ to, to speak to me and to pray uh, for me even when I wasn't receiving anything like that. Um, she's, she's my, my mother in the Lord. Um, you know, uh, later on when I finally uh, uh, got out um, and uh, ended up getting married, um, that whole prison ministry was at my, at my wedding, and she was there. Um, it, it's just been a special moment with, uh, with her and, and that little church. Casey, just a couple of minutes out from news. Uh, take us to a time when you had an encounter with God in your prison cell because this lady wasn't there with you. You were on your own. Describe for us what happened. I was in the cell, and um, at this point, you know, like I mentioned, uh, there's no windows. There's a very dim light that stays on all day, all night. Um, and, um, you know, the cell next to me, the, one of the things that you you got to understand about uh, solitary confinement is... Uh, not everybody is made to to um, to, to to survive so, uh, that type of solitude. Uh, there's men that that want to commit suicide all the time there, um, uh, and in fact, uh, in these t- uh, tip, uh, type of cells, there's no way of hanging yourself. And uh, we all knew when somebody went crazy, uh, they would, you know, there was a lot of yelling, and the only way to try to uh, uh, commit suicide is by running from the the back end of your cell and smashing your, your head first uh, in hopes to crack your neck. I mean, this happened very often. It's one of those things that you'll never forget, the sounds of, of somebody's skull uh, hitting uh, prison metal and, and trying to commit suicide. Um, the cell next to me was a guy that was there for 10 years, and he started hearing voices and thought that there were ducks in the cell. And for me, um, I had a supernatural encounter uh, in that cell, uh, which I talked in very descriptively uh in my book, The Shock Collar, I, I, in full details, but I'll, I'll give you a gist of it. I was there. Um, uh, I know I saw something that, that, that was uh, 
there was no way that um, I was going to come out the same after watching what I what, what I saw, what God allowed me to see in that cell. And um, uh, I, I remember um, again, I, nobody had ever told me how to pray, nobody had had ever told me uh, how to talk to God. But I remember. Take us into that moment, that encounter that you had with God in your prison cell. Uh, well, you know, uh, uh, the, the guy, the gentleman that was uh, next to me, um, when I got to, uh, to to solitary, he already had been there for 10 years. So uh, he had been there quite a while. Um, and this guy, uh, uh, from one day to the other, just um, uh, started hallucinating and thinking that there was ducks, uh, real ducks in the cell. I mean, totally, completely lost his mind. Uh, the solitude in there tends to have its way with, with many uh, inmates in there. And uh, at this particular time, uh, I was laying down on, on my bunk, you know, uh, um, wide awake. Uh, there's no drugs in my system. I, in fact, I, uh, when you read the book, you'll know that uh, just the, the, the drug thing uh, wasn't part of my life as much. Uh, wasn't a big uh, uh, fan of that. Um, <clears throat> but I'm laying down, and I'm looking up against the wall, and when out of nowhere, uh, it was one of those, it was like a movie reel, one of those old movie reels um, with, a, I think they're 35-millimeter uh, uh, slides kind of thing, um, <coughs> is, is projecting on my wall. And um, I start to see a playback and, and a play-by-play of as young as I, as I could remember, as little as I can remember, um, you know, from the first candy I stole to, to uh, the first things that, that, I, that I robbed, uh, and it was very vivid. It was moments that only I knew existed in my life that took place in my life. And then it would kind of cut. And this is where it captured me because I thought, uh, I'm not, there's no way I'm looking at this. This can't be real. There's no way I'm looking at this. And if, if uh, the dude next door is, is, is thinking that he has ducks, well, then I guess this is now my turn because I have a movie inside my, my cell. And, uh, you know, but I knew that I was wide awake. I knew I was in my five senses. And then, then it would kind of cut, and it was, it was a man with, with, uh, carrying a cross. I could see very, very well uh, uh, soldiers. I could see crowds uh, that didn't like this guy carrying this cross. Um, and then it would disappear, and it would go back to moments of my life. I mean, it was so in order. Um, in age order, and, and everything was just so, I knew that this was real. And I'm watching this, and um, I, I got to see the whole, the whole play uh, uh, of the gospel right inside myself, uh, from the nails on his hands to his feet and the cross being raised. And uh, I still didn't understand what I was looking at. Again, I was by myself in that cell. Uh, no one's there with me. I'm not on drugs. I'm in my five senses. And... Um, one of the things that I did when I was eight years old, um, uh, when I, while I was outside playing uh, ball with all the kids, the neighborhood kids, you know, my, my first name is actually Darwin, and I never liked that name. I just didn't like that name. So uh, one one day uh, out of nowhere, we were playing baseball outside, and I gathered uh, I don't know fifteen twenty kids that, from the neighborhood, and I just told them uh, flat out, I said, uh, from now on, you're going to call me Casey, and that name, that nickname, stayed with me up until now. I mean. My, my father, my mother, everybody calls me Casey. Nobody addresses me as Darwin anymore. And so I'm in the cell, and I see this guy. He's on this cross, 
and I know that this guy is looking at me. I can't see his face, but I know that whoever's on that cross is looking at me. And then um, something very um, powerful happened in there where I heard this man who's on this cross say to me, Darwin, I did this for you. And then I audibly heard his breath leaving him. And I knew that this person had died. And, uh, and, and, and right away is when I, I, I got in the middle of my cell and I wept. Uh, I mean, I wept uncontrollably. And I remember repenting for the very first time and telling God, you know, uh, I'm sorry for. And I got so real with him. Um, again, no, nobody had ever told me how to pray. But I remember telling God, you know, uh, I'm sorry for stabbing this guy, for stabbing that guy, for robbing this person, for doing this home invasion. I, I mean, I went through every crime that I could possibly remember. And I don't know how long I stayed on my knees on, in, the, in the center of that cell. Uh, and something, some, there was this, I don't know how to describe it, but it, this uh, immense amount of peace and freedom that I felt. And how do you feel freedom inside of solitary confinement? And it was only through through that experience, through Christ, through encountering Christ in that cell. Um, moments later, uh, days later, rather, um, is when I heard uh, God speak to me again. And uh, and he said, uh, you're going to knock on your gate, on your door, and you're going to ask for the chaplain, and which I did. And um, uh, several days later is when I got to sit down with the chaplain inside of another cell. Uh, you know, when, when we're getting extracted from these cells, usually there's four to five guards uh, that have, there's a procedure that happens when they let you out of the this, this, this cell just to go take a shower, you know, 20 feet away. Um, and there's five, four to five guards uh, in full riot gear that escort you out of the cell. You're already chained and just to take a simple shower. So I went and talked to the, the chaplain in chains, and I remember him opening up his Bible I had explained my whole entire uh, story of what had happened in the cell. And I remember his eyes just got so watery and his lip started to, to quiver. And, and, and I got very, uh, you know, it was a very emotional moment. And he turned the Bible and, and explained to me the gospel and uh, the story of, uh, of Christ, his life, his death and resurrection. And I knew that that had happened to me. That that's why I felt so free. And as you say, it's not uncommon for prisoners who are in that sort of isolation to have hallucinations. And if you were having an hallucination, it could have been like the one you describe with the prisoner next door. There are ducks in my cell. But the sort of vision that you had, and uh, let's not call it a hallucination, although I imagine that when you're having a vision from God or when you're receiving his revelation in that way, uh, some people will describe that as an hallucination. But what has happened to you in that time is this special encounter. And how do you describe change that happens when you're on your knees weeping before God and going from the person who says, I don't care, to that person who feels uh, those feelings of remorse and sorrow. Uh, give us some insight here, Casey, about the change that happens after an encounter like that. You know, it's, um, it's one of those um, moments where, you know, it, it doesn't take a, a genius to, 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 to understand that if you rob, that's a bad thing. If you kill someone, that's a bad thing. But there's more to that than just the act. 
And for me, in that moment, I knew that I had sinned before God. There was something inside of me that just, I knew that I had, it wasn't just that I had did these things, it's that I had sinned before God. And, uh, you know, the, the scripture tells us that, you know, that, that sin becomes exceedingly sinful. And that that's the experience that I had in that cell. And, and um, it, it, you know, how do you get up from one morning to the other and decide that you don't ever want to... Uh, hurt another person that doesn't happen unless you you encounter christ and for me you know i've been out for more than uh, 24 years now and uh you know i, I didn't re- i haven't reoffended. um I, i'm a pastor now uh, i've been pastoring for the past uh, 10 years uh, actually a little bit longer than that um if we count the uh, as a youth pastor as well uh but uh, and that's what you know you'll know them by their fruit and i think this is where um this is the change that, that really authentically took place. And like you said, it, it wasn't a, a hallucination because then this would be a, a very long, enduring hallucination. It's it's what God allowed me to see in a vision and uh, it, uh, while I was awake, and uh, it has changed my, my, my whole life. Um, and I just, I'm, I'm so grateful uh, that, that God has, um, that he redeemed my life and saved me and, and, and I'm doing what I'm doing now. Uh, to 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 speak in in various places and and try to uh, do something about you know speaking to the life of of, of young uh, teens as well as as adults uh, and and giving them uh, showing them that there is still hope and that hope is only found in in Christ the Lord. Casey Diaz is our guest, and I might say let's take a call. We have had our talkback line open on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen, and I might. Uh, just to honour the patience of Phil in Melbourne, who's been waiting very patiently, but uh, haven't had an opportunity until now to uh, bring you in, Phil. But Phil, from Melbourne, uh, your thoughts for our conversation today with Casey? Oh, thank you very much. Actually, it's Bill. Oh, Bill. But, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much, Casey, for sharing your story. I really appreciate that, and it uh, resonates a little bit with my past and that. Just uh, just uh, when you were sharing about the importance of family and... Um, uh, raising children and those sorts of things. Like, um, from my observations, gangs are an alternative family for for young people who don't don't have a sense of belonging in that. And uh, I agree that I agree with you that uh, you know, family immediate families are very very important in raising the children. But often I observe that uh, there's a lot of neglect from uh, from from governments and and stuff like in terms of making sure that uh, young people have got a future, that uh, that they've got, you know, employment, possibly all sorts of things, so they don't get disillusions and lose hope and things like that. So I agree with you that family is so important and that, um, you know, that we're often quick to blame young people for joining gangs, but young people can only, they've only got a certain amount of experience in life and, Sometimes that's the only family that they, uh, that loves them and accepts them. And the other thing I'd, I'd appreciate your comment on is um, just uh, we're seeing young people being gender confused, and often there's a lot of uh, judgment from uh, church. But quick, quick to judge and say, "Oh, that person's gay," or this or that. Can you please comment as to what 
your observations uh, in terms of what causes Phil, gender confusion? it's a little bit off uh, track from where our conversation's going, and uh, I'll give that option uh, to Casey if he wants to uh, contribute there. Um, Casey, is, is that something you'd like to, uh, to address? Sure, that's fine. Um, you know, um, look, sin is sin across the board. You know, uh, 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 and it needs to be directed at sin. And uh, I think one of the things that that we have been accustomed to do uh, to doing from even pulpits across the world is that we're so soft on sin now that uh, that we're we almost almost kind of snuggle it and we love people all the way to hell by telling them that everything's okay that they could continue in in certain lifestyles. Um, you know, we look at what John the Baptist came. He came in in a in a time and in, in a in a place where uh, there was just uh, absolute um, disregard of God's law, God's word, God's presence, and he comes in with a message to repent. And I think the message to repent, no matter if we're still here a thousand years from now, two thousand years more, um, the message still needs to be repent and turn from your wicked ways. I mean, that's that's the reality. And I think that you know we love them, we love everybody. But we tell them the truth, and that's so important as Christians to never uh, look at sin and kind of minimize it so that it's okay for someone to continue in a certain lifestyle. And whether it's drinking or whether it's, you know, partying or drug using or, or homosexuality, we need to call it what the Bible calls it, and it's sin. Um, so we need to do that in love, and we need to respect people uh, still, and there's a, there's a medium to do that. There's a way to do that. And, uh, and it's through the Holy Spirit and uh, through, you know, spending time with God um, so that we talk to God first, uh, and then we talk to the people. We don't talk to people about God and then talk to God. We talk to God first uh, through prayer, and then he gives us that instruction and the wisdom to address these matters uh, with uh, various people. Thank you so much to Phil in Melbourne for your insight today. Let's take a one more call. Jonathan from Perth in WA. Hello, Jonathan. Yeah, hello. Jonathan, what are your thoughts? Yes, what I'm thinking about when uh, Casey was talking is, you know, when you are in a desperate situation that uh, there's no way you, if you acknowledge your sin before God, whether you are at the point of death, if you can surrender your life to God, you can see a great deliverance. So I think what you were talking about is that uh, we should admit that we are sinners, but we sometimes do wrong because we don't know that we are wrong. So if we surrender our life to God, God can give us a new beginning. So the only thing is that uh, it can be hard for us if you always justify yourself. For Christ don't need our justification. We should be broken and come to Him who we are. He can begin and give her a new life. So I love what God done. Jonathan, great thoughts there. That doesn't matter where you are on that spectrum. Right at the bottom, right at the lowest, there is a point of surrender and there is a new life that is ahead when you put your trust in Christ. Your thoughts for Jonathan? Anything to reflect on there, Casey? Yeah, it's, uh, it's correct. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how far you've gone. Um, there's no sin that, that the blood of Christ does not cover. And, you know, and the Bible tells us that he's, he's, he's there with an outstretched hand. He's constantly after mankind. And that's what makes it so special about Christianity is that in Christianity, it's not man chasing uh, God. It's God chasing man. And, and, and he wants relationship 
uh, with us. And uh, what a beautiful thing that uh, the living God, the Almighty, would want anything to do with any of us. Yeah, you know, while we were yet sinners, uh, Christ died for us, and and that's what, what a what a magnificent thing to to look at, to read, to 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 soak that in that, that God wants us. Um, and it doesn't matter how dark we uh, we could get; He's there and He's available to save. Thank you so much to Jonathan in Perth, and we just got uh, five minutes or so remaining in our conversation, Casey. Uh, there's so much to talk about the way that you come out of prison and enter back into normal life it's not an easy adjustment uh in the, just uh, quickly though it might be worth uh, just sharing a few thoughts here because uh, what happens when you come out of prison having had the experience that you had within uh, the jail uh, this is a significant thing because how do you find a new life a new pathway uh, 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 turning your back on the violence of your youth. Uh, take us into a few insights when it comes to the adjustment that you make beyond this decision and this encounter with Christ and outside of the prison walls. Well, initially, uh, you know, as a gang leader, as a shot caller in, in this prison gang, um, you know, you, you, you don't just step down from your leadership. Uh, uh, your life is required uh, as of that moment, um, and they want you dead. So for the following two years, um, I had to endure some 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 hardship um that God allowed me to um to to um to to go through um his hand was still with me and and preserved my life while I was in there uh but when I stepped out for the very first time uh, out here um it, it was a challenge you know so many things had changed uh but I knew that I had to plug into a church I had to go looking for a church and and I went and searched for a, for a church until I found one and and I knew that I needed a job, and I, I went looking for a job, and I got a job. And, and you know, it, it, I moved to the city where I grew up. Uh, I didn't tell any of them uh, that I was getting out. In fact, I didn't even know when I was getting out. So when I finally did get out, I didn't tell anybody, and I moved very far to a very secluded little city called San Pedro. Uh, and um, I knew that there was an, a lot of action there, um, and I stayed there in in, in, the, in quiet, uh, in a quiet moment. And... Um, you know, uh, uh, it took a while. It took years to kind of get used to, um, uh, you know, getting up uh, and going to a job. And, and, and But I knew that uh, the local church was uh, essential for me to have a successful parole and, uh, and, and, and adapt to uh, civilization all over again, you know, and, and, and a healthy way of living. So uh, I did that, and by God's grace and his mercy, uh, he kept me all the way through, and you know, I, I, I'm a business owner. Um, uh, I pastor a church. Um, I, I, I have the, the the best thing that ever happened to me, besides my salvation, is that I'm uh, I've been married, uh, about to celebrate my 20th year with my wife, and she's a believer. And um, I have three kids. Uh, all of them uh, are in the Lord. Uh, it, it's just uh, it's it's amazing what God can do with anyone's life, um, including those that we think that they ha- there's no hope for them. And Casey, you have an experience before God, an encounter, and dramatic one in the way that you did. Uh, the idea of sharing Jesus with boldness wherever you have the opportunity, does the same fearlessness come into your ability to be able to share your faith with others in the way that you had this I don't care attitude before? How do you describe the courageous 
effect of being now on the side of Jesus Christ and being a carrier of the message of his salvation? How do you describe that? You know, it's it's um, in many times when I go and speak, uh, I, I tell people, I share with people, and I say, uh, you know, when I was living in this gang uh, lifestyle, I thought it was a dangerous thing. I thought it was, you know, living on the edge. Uh, but I have found that living on the edge is living a Christian life, you know, because uh, people don't want to hear the truth anymore. And, and, you know, they they not that they always wanted it, but, you know, especially nowadays. Um, so it, it takes a, a boldness and, you know, um, as gung ho as I was for the gang uh, in my in my past life style, uh, I'm you know uh, uh, of course I use God's wisdom uh, to approach people, but um, you know I I know where I stand with with the Lord and and uh, I take every opportunity that I can to to share the gospel because you never know it could be somebody you know grabbing tomatoes in the in your local market and um, and and God calls you to to witness to them and share Christ with them and you need to be ready for that. And I think uh, when we spend uh, quality time with, with the Lord in the morning, when we wake up and we make Him priority, um, you know, it becomes not easier, but it, you just have that boldness and that confidence that, you know, you've studied to show yourself approved. You can go out there and, and share it um, in a way that, that's going to produce some, uh, some, new, uh, some new Christians. And let me encourage listeners today, if you're touched by this story and you want to make a surrender of your own life to Christ, uh, then uh, you're welcome to call our Vision Christian Prayer Line and uh, someone will talk to you there and perhaps lead you in a prayer of repentance and a prayer of connecting with the living God. There's been some wonderful endorsements. I mentioned that your story had been cast as something similar to the story that many listeners might be familiar with, the cross and the switchblade. And uh, I'm just uh, drawn to the endorsement that came for your book from Nikki Cruz, who was the central character in that story and also the author of the bestseller Run Baby Run, who wrote, This is a story of a tough young man who lost his way and of a loving God who never forgot him, no matter where he was. And we've been talking with Casey Diaz, and uh, his full name, Darwin Casey Diaz, sharing his story. And the book is called The Shot Caller. Uh, it's available when you go online. You can get it through Amazon. Uh, publisher is Thomas Nelson. Uh, you can simply Google that and you'll find where you can get a hold of the book. Uh, also check on uh, Christian bookstores in Australia. I'm not sure whether the distribution is all uh, this this far advanced. But let me ask you one quick question, uh, Casey. Are you planning at any time soon to come to Australia? Um, uh, when, whenever the invitation is outstretched to us, uh, we would love to go out there and um, and spend some, some time with you guys, uh, you know, uh, as the Lord wills. Um, but we're we're ready to go wherever God wants us to go, and and uh, it, it's just a it, you know it's a matter of a, of an invitation, and, and we're set to go. Well, there might be might be someone listening who wants to make that invitation and set up some opportunities here in Australia. Casey Diaz, uh, thank you so much for taking some time to share your heart with us today on Twenty Twenty. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. 
Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.